0: Hello and welcome to Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast for Club Chimera Martial Arts. I'm your host Jamie Club, inviting you to please join me on these shows as I share my reflections, inspirations and motivations from the world of martial arts and self-protection. Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, Owltale, Tuned In or wherever else you stream and download your podcast to avoid missing out on future episodes. Don't forget to check out the show notes as well as our regularly updated blog and website at clubchimera.com. This episode we continue our annual Martial Movie Massacre event with contributions from these really excellent people. There's Chris Wilder of the Back Channel and the Martial Arts and Life podcast. Mary Stevens, founder of the Athena School of Karate and author of the Warrior Monkeys books. Fabulous newcomer to the show, Vijay Pathak of Forest School of Karate. New guest, but regular contributor to the questions section of the show, Dara Brathnek of Navan Wing Chun. Peter Jones, founder of Cajun Roo Jiu-Jitsu and author of Ninja Nurse, returns with another reality check on martial movie injuries. Les Bubka, I'm going to be cheeky here, I hope Jamie won't mind. Of the Anxious Black Belt podcast and author of the books of the same name. And finally, regular questions contributor and founder of Kuritan Karate, Tracy Radley. Put down the gloves and pick up the popcorn for Son of Martial Movie Massacre. What better way to start this show than with the rich, soothing tones of Chris Wilder? You might recall I began this year's season of podcasts by interviewing Chris in Don't Drink with Calvin. Chris is the presenter of the Back Channel and Martial Arts and Life podcast. An author of 17 books, he's hugely respected in the martial arts world. He runs his dojo in West Seattle, USA and teaches internationally. However, his knowledge base outside of traditional karate is vast from being a public and political consultant to legislative staff to devoting years of his life in diverse spiritual orders. One of my fondest memories of Chris was sharing a meal at a traditional English pub along with Ian Abernethy as we ping-ponged off a range of subjects, often going below the surface, but never taking ourselves too seriously. I couldn't think of a better person to open this episode's contributions.
1: Hey, Jamie, Chris Wilder here. Thanks for having me back on the Marshall... Movie Massacre. Interesting thing you've got this year. Choose and address an underrated martial arts movie and a non martial arts movie for folks to watch. Okay, well, here's the deal nobody listens to any of our recommendations, nobody follows through, nobody takes recommendations regarding movies, and everybody does their own things and scatters to the wind with whatever we suggest, like tumbleweeds blowing across that very movie screen in a desolate desert. Now, having said that, I'm happy to make two recommendations for the martial Movie Massacre. The first one is the underrated martial arts movie, and I'm going to tell you that it's a movie called The Score. In 2001, Robert De Niro... Edward Norton, Marlon Brando in his last role, and Angela Bassett shot the movie The Score. And it's an underrated martial arts movie. What, are you talking about a diamond heist movie in Montreal? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's a ninja movie. It's all about ninjutsu. The main characters being thieves and liars and cheats, they're all involved in in deception. They want to blend in. They want to be the equivalent of spies. They want to be the gray man. And these prefer no attention. This movie has Robert De Niro playing the old pro who gets kind of conned into the last big heist, you know, to have him live out his days on his rewards of his ill-gotten gain. And Ed Norton, being younger, of course, takes on the role of the young upstart who is working their craft. I think it's a really fine little movie. There is deception. There is obfuscation. There are lies, cheating, and, of course, stealing. It's all ninjutsu. It's all there. It's just a modern expression of it. I'm a sucker for Robert De Niro. And the same with Ed Norton. You know, you talk about Robert De Niro with Taxi Driver and Heat and countless other movies. And Ed Norton, uh, it's the same with him Fight Club, Rounders. So when I see the two of these in this movie, the score, sign me up. Um, I'm getting into that. The fighting in the movie is cool, the fighting in it is fast, efficient, and brutal. Well, that resonates with me because that's the song I'm always singing is Be Fast, Be Efficient, Be Brutal or some permutation of that. So, of course, it resonates with me. Yeah, it's got some great fight scenes in it. The choreography, whoever put it together, did a fantastic job. So I suggest that you look up and watch this underrated martial arts movie, The Score. For what it is, it's a ninja movie. Again, the score from 2001 with Ed Norton, Robert De Niro, Marlon Brando in his last role, and Angela Bassett. And now continuing on with the recommendation of a good non-martial arts movie to watch, and with the understanding that I'm going to make this recommendation, and not a single one of you is going to follow through with either one of these movies. It wasn't that important. You forgot. You didn't. It. it, it, it. But here we go. And, and you know what? If you think I'm accusing you of it, pfft, I do it too. I've never seen The Wire. Oh, you got to see The Wire. Never seen it. You haven't seen Breaking Bad? No, I've seen one episode of Breaking Bad. I'm just as guilty as everybody else in wanting my own desires and my own agenda. So please, I am the pot calling the kettle black. Don't take offense. <laughs> the movie that I'm going to recommend to you... A good non-martial arts movie is The Razor's Edge with Bill Murray. You're like, what? What are you talking about? A Somerset mom story with Bill Murray? Yeah, you're going to likely not find this movie very pleasant. Set in the early 1900s, so the pacing of life is different. The pacing of the film is different. You're going to assume that Bill Murray is supposed to be funny. He's not. This is a dramatic role. If you attempt to watch the razor's edge in cluttered environment, an interrupted one by people, sleep, cars, trucks, you know, coming back to it after a couple days, falling asleep, splitting the viewing time over days, it's going to fail you. This needs to be seen in one continuous monolithic viewing. And I know that sounds daunting, but, I mean, it's just a regular movie length. So uh, don't um, be dissuaded by that. The story is of a guy, Larry Darrell, who's trying to find a reason for his existence after suffering World War I combat as an ambulance driver. His world changed, and and the quest set out. And I'm talking from Welsh coal miners to the Upanishads to Tibetan monasteries. The streets of Paris, drug dealers, prostitutes, stockbrokers, and a fish market. When I first watched this movie, there were three of us in the theater. There was myself and a young couple sitting behind me a couple rows. And when that movie was over, they got up and left. And I wound up sitting there until the credits had rolled and the screen had just turned blue. I didn't know what I had seen, but it had impacted me that much. I sat in my car for probably another, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes in the hot central Washington summer sun that I'd tried to escape by going to this movie. I've shared this movie with others, and changes were made in their life because of this movie, and it is because they were on the cusp in their lives of a change, and the razor's edge tipped them over. I can't promise you that you're going to like it or it will resonate. You know, you can always turn it off. But I'm here to tell you this, that to this day, several of my friends and I use lines from the movie as a form of semaphore to communicate a moment, an experience, or an observation. Usually something that has some gravity, some weight, some depth. And it comes from that movie that Bill Murray did. The legend is is that he did Ghostbusters with the caveat built into his contract that he got to do The Razor's Edge. I don't know that to be true, but it's a great story. So, Jamie, those are my two recommendations. A good movie that's a non-martial arts movie to watch and uh, an unsort-of-seen kind of behind-the-shadows martial arts movie that I think that you should watch. And it's all about ninjas, the score. Uh, Thanks for letting me do this again, Jamie. It's fun. This is my second year in a row, and I'm so gracious of you to invite me. Thanks so much. Hope I haven't gone on too long. Hope you enjoy it. And for everybody out there, hey, be well. You know, live your life, man. It's a great planet. It's a great place. Go be big. Go be large. Enjoy your life. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, yeah. Oh, You can reach me at chriswilder.com. That's K-R-I-S-W-I-L-D-E-R dot com. I'll talk to you later.
0: Chris makes a good point. I still have a lengthy list of movies I must see before I die, and sometimes I'm ashamed I haven't in favour of some utter crap that popped up on my streaming service and had an interesting cover. For a while, I had it in my head that Marlon Brando's ignoble final role was in 1996's terrible adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau, but it's great to be reassured that he went out in style with the score. Now, I appreciate Chris is at least half giving us a wink, if you can half wink, um, that this is his non-martial arts entry, but he might have a point on ninjutsu. Maybe I will take a similar liberty in one of my choices next episode. Anyway, yes, there's so much in the score that unknowingly pays more homage to historical ninjutsu than virtually anything usually considered to be a ninja movie. Like Chris, I'm equally as a big fan of Edward Norton as I am of Robert De Niro. From Primal Fear to American History X, I was won over by Norton's performances. Razor's Edge is definitely on my to watch list. The works of Somerset Maughan seem to circle me. He has the intriguing status of being one of those writers who inspires polarising views amongst critics. Being both a huge critical and commercial success has a tendency to inspire such views. Indeed, it has prompted other writers to analyse in depth this very polarisation. Whilst mainstream critical opinion tends to agree he showed genuine literary talent in his initial work, his opponents argue that he sold out commercially when he became one of the highest paid writers of his generation. I first heard about Somerset Morn via the missing lost third episode from the first season of the 1950s radio sitcom Hancock's Half Hour called The Hancock Festival. It's a fun satire, if you like late silent generation stroke early boomer generation radio comedy. Next, I got round to seeing Of Human Bondage. Again, I confess this probably had something initially due to my liking of the golden era of Hollywood and the acting of Betty Davis and the works of Somerset Maugham. But the audiobook version of the novel is on my personal playlist. Anyway, 1984's The Razor's Edge is the second adaptation of this novel of the same name. At a cursory glance, it interests me that it's semi-autobiographical. Mourn served in the Red Cross, and it explores Indian culture positively through European eyes. In the latter instance, it might serve as an interesting interim between Ian Forster's 1924 novel Passage to India and the 1950s Beats movement, I have to indulgently, clumsily and geekily mention that there is another Hancock's half-hour episode called The Poetry Society. I can't recommend enough for its cutting contemporary satire. However, I have far more confidence in Chris's ability to move you to the razor's edge than I have to 1950s BBC. Relationships between Western and Eastern culture are definitely an area of interest that I think most martial artists would profit from exploring. Looking at the plot from Razor's Edge and Chris's own biography, I can certainly see why the story would appeal. As for the Bill Murray story, it's certainly believable given the number of other commercially popular artists in films that have made similar movie deals in order to get the green light for more challenging work. Rather aptly, Murray has also become a figure who has polarised opinion. However, in contrast to Somerset Maughan, he's more criticised for being pretentious in his 21st century film roles compared to the popular comedy work he did in the 80s and 90s. When it comes to literary insights, we have to look no further than our next contributor, Mary Stevens was a guest on the episode Why Role Models Need to Be Critical Thinkers. Whilst Mary gave up her teaching job as a high school, secondary school teacher specialising in English and history to become a full-time martial arts and self-protection teacher, she is a patron of reading for Didcot Girls School. She founded the Athena School of Karate in the Oxfordshire region, where she teaches progressive, practical karate and self-protection. Mary also teaches internationally, where she's worked for Fair Fight in Varanasi, India, teaching both karate and self-protection.
2: Martial movies massacre time. I'm delighted to be invited back to contribute my thoughts on this year's topics. Thank you, Jamie. Martial arts movies, which may not have had the recognition they deserve. Now... I don't understand why more people don't rave about the Forbidden Kingdom, which has everything I want in a martial arts movie. For starters, it has Jackie Chan and Jet Li, first time they were together in a film. The fight sequences are superb and use drunken kung fu to brilliant comic effect. Based on a 16th century story, the film, a DVD release in 2008, dutifully has a young protagonist inspired by a mysterious enigmatic figure. In this case, it's Jackie Chan, who runs a pawn shop that the young Kung Fu fan frequents. Because this is an audio medium, I would like to ensure that listeners can see the spelling P-A-W-N there, by the way, pawn shop. Thank you. A fracas over a magical staff takes the young hero away from an attack by hooligans and into ancient China where Jet Li is a silent monk and all sorts of entirely predictable nonsense ensues. To my mind, there is... Only really one plot for every martial arts movie, whether it's Kill Bill or Kung Fu Panda, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And if you're listening to this, then nor, I suspect, would you. So, for those of you who haven't seen it, let me commend this film to you. Perhaps you'd like to get a cliché bingo card to go with it. Splendid fun. My second film recommendation is from 1989, Dead Poets Society. If you listened to Jamie's recent podcast on books martial artists should read, then you will know that we both endorse a critical thinking approach to the martial arts. Dead Poets Society is guilty of dragging many idealistic people into education where, like Robin Williams, they rapidly learn that most education systems have nothing to do with thinking. Certainly not independent thinking, which is considered dangerous and anarchic by the senior school hierarchy. In one scene, the teacher shows the students how easy it is to fall into step with your peers and become part of the herd, moving inevitably towards a future designed for you by other people. This tension between systems and individuals will never be resolved, yet it should be an ever-present concern for everyone in a leadership role. To see the students discover a passion for language and learning is very powerful. But to see how this nurturing of questioning and challenging tradition plays out is superbly nuanced and should resonate with everyone, especially if, like me, you have a love of history and traditional arts but do not want your students to be sheep. Robin Williams has never been more magical, despite this being no fantasy. Fans of medical drama House will be intrigued by Robert Sean Leonard's wonderful performance as Neil Perry. When I first saw it, I didn't really see beyond those two, and I feel I missed the point. The splendid Ethan Hawke as Todd Anderson is the point. May we teach Todd's, may we be Todd's. Most of us are not destined to greatness, but we deserve to live lives that give us purpose, fulfilment and happiness. I got through all of that without resorting to Latin, amazingly, so I'll leave you now to seize your day. Thanks, Jamie.
0: When it comes to martial arts movies, Forbidden Kingdom is really a kung fu match made in heaven. After the massive disappointment and outright betrayal to martial movie-loving fans that was cradled to the grave, The Forbidden Kingdom showed us all how you properly pair Jet Li with a fellow martial arts movie star. By giving a four centuries old Chinese story the full Hollywood blockbuster treatment, it was perhaps the biggest compliment paid to Hong Kong action cinema since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. With Rob Lion King Minkoff at the helm, it is unsurprising that it is good family fun. However, perhaps its greatest unsung hero is fight choreographer Yun Wu Ping. Yun is the man responsible for directing many of the greatest late 70s into early 90s kung fu classics and also fight directing an even greater number. He has directed Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, and Yun Byu, in addition to Michelle Yeo. Donnie Yen and Jet Li. His directorial credits include Jackie Chan's classics Snake in Eagle's Shadow and Drunken Master, Sammo Hung's Magnificent Butcher and Biao's Dreadnought, all movies that I readily devoured in the early 90s when I was playing Kung Fu catchup. Wing Chun is also an imaginative retelling of the Wing Chun origins myth, mixing into the plot some Twelfth Night style gender bending and feminism. Yun is also responsible for handling the fight choreography in Lethal Weapon 4, Jet Li's international debut, the Matrix trilogy of films, the aforementioned Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, both Kill Bill movies, the hilarious Kung Fu Hustle, and the last two Ip Man installments, to name but a few. Mary is 100% right in that it is predictable and cliche-ridden, but it is done with the type of affectionate knowing nod that we can all appreciate, and I think it's the reason why she believes it needs more appreciation. It actually was a box office success in the US, Canada and China, but has somehow faded over the passage of time. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favour and do so for pure fantastical indulgence. Dead Poet Society is a great choice, especially for martial arts teachers who I know make up a fair amount of my listenership. It took me a good portion of my teenage years to accept the diversity of Robin Williams' range. Dead Poet Society not only should be essential viewing for anyone who wishes to teach, and to teach young people especially, but also deserves the rewatch. As Mary points out, it's far too easy to get distracted by the lead performances and to not delve deeper into the work. Much like other great and critically acclaimed modern classics of cinema, such as one of my personal favourites, A Few Good Men, it is too easy to get lost in the clichés the film inspired. The film's most famous scene, where the various students quote, Oh Captain, My Captain from Walt Whitman, can be difficult to watch, especially if you've seen such comedy series as The League of Gentlemen. But not if you fully invested in the movie and immersed yourself in a manner Chris advised us to view the razor's edge. Although I have a deserved evil reputation for spoilers, I'm not going to elaborate further than supporting the view expressed in this recommendation. When TJ Smith of the Kung Fu Podcast interviewed me, he surmised our discussion with it being about the importance of finding one's own voice. This is definitely the goal martial arts teachers, all teachers for that matter, should be trying to achieve with their students. It's why I put individuality as one of my triad of training principles and objectives. Thanks again, Mary, for a great film choice and a welcome reminder. Our next contribution comes from a total newcomer to the podcast. Vijay Pathak is an instructor at the Forest School of Karate at the Ridgeway Academy in Hertfordshire, UK. He has a continued thirst and enthusiasm for knowledge that inspires me and infects just about anyone around him. Prior to during and after lockdown, he's been amongst those practical karateka who has brought his school into a new era of exciting development. He has a great talent for teaching children as well as adults and I was very impressed by the way he maintained class interest.
3: Hi Jamie, thanks for giving me this excellent opportunity to supply some content to your podcast. So, The remit was to recommend a non-martial arts movie, which still has something that a martial artist or self-defense practitioner could take away with them. I've chosen to pick Back to the Future Part 3 as my movie of choice. This movie was chosen during a Facebook conversation with Dara and Jamie. For those of you that have never seen Back to the Futures, I thoroughly recommend them. They're really good fun, um, really good to watch. The story follows the adventures and mishaps of a young Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, who is desperately trying to make his way home while jumping back and forth through time. Throughout this trilogy, Marty gets hounded by a bully called Biff. And Biff either appears as a young version, an older version, or in this case, an ancestor. And each time, Marty gets golded into playing the bully's game, often leading him to fall into mishap. Back to the Future Part 3 finds Marty trapped in the Wild West, trying to save his good friend, Dr. Emmett Brown, from being shot. As Marty is going back in time to the Wild West, he decided to use the alias of Clint Eastwood to get around, which nobody else finds quite as amusing as he does. The scene is set in Hill Valley at a barn dance. All the settlers are there. Biff, Mad Dog Tannen, Trakes takes this opportunity, to take the life of Dr Emmett Brown. Marty jumps in at the nick of time and saves the doc uh, by pushing Biff's shooting hand with the frisbee, knocking the bullet and making it shoot off in the wrong direction. This makes Biff very angry and he sets his eyes now firmly on Marty. Marty backs up and says, uh, tells Biff to lighten up. Mighty words, runt. You man enough to back him up? Biff replies, looking for blood. Marty turns to walk away until Biff yells behind him, What's wrong, dude? You yellow? Marty turns slowly and replies, Nobody calls me yellow. Some more dialogue ensues, and Marty has now accepted a gun duel with Biff. Once Biff has left the scene, Marty's great-granddad approaches Marty and tells him off. You had it, Mr. Eastwood. You could have walked away and nobody would have thought any the less of you. It was just words, hot air from a buffoon. Instead, you let him rile you into playing his game, his way, by his rules. You remind me of my brother, Martin. Martin used to let people provoke him into fighting. And that's how he got a bowie knife shoved into his belly in a saloon in Virginia City. Re-watching this scene took me Back to uh, Jamie's book, When Parents Aren't Around, the part on fighting and self-protection. Jamie has been covering this with my school during the lockdown, and it was good to see a perfect example being played out. As Jamie puts it in his book, bullies have always challenged weak people to fighting them. By accepting a fight, you've just given control to the person who's made the challenge. Remember, no is a sentence. By shouting no, you're taking control of the situation. And there you have it, a non-martial arts movie that the martial artist should watch. For the underrated martial arts movie, I've chosen Only the Strong with uh, Mark Cascus. On the front of the DVD, I remember it said the ultimate martial art, and that sold it to me, to be honest. The bump sort of read, ex-Special Forces soldier Louis Stevens, played by Mark Cascus, returns to Miami to find his former high school overrun by drugs and violence. A master of the Brazilian martial art capoeira, Stephen pledges to straighten out a dozen of the school's worst students by teaching them with a demanding fighting style. Slowly, his programme begins to work, giving the students new hope and purpose. But the local drug lord vows to stop Stephen's positive influence. And now Stephen's must fight to save his own life as well as the lives of his rebellious young students. Trying to describe it would be like (laughs) would be like a martial arts version of Dead Poets Society. Teacher gets given unruly students. Teacher shows the students another way to be better. Students picking their teacher over their family of drug dealers, singing their capoeira song during the last fight scene as a sort of captain, my captain. I really enjoyed this movie for the following reasons. Uh, The soundtrack was good and the way the students then got together through the martial arts. It was a bit cheesy, but still it it was a lot of fun and I I enjoyed the acrobatics. It was good. The movie came out in 1993 and talking about this movie gave me the opportunity to review the fight scenes uh, and some parts of the story via YouTube. I remember being a blue belt. When I first watched it and going to karate and trying to do some of the kicks that I saw in the movie, thinking, how can he do a round kick while still having one hand on the floor? It really had to have to really work on my flexibility to be able to even do that kick. The butterfly kick that Mark Lukaskis performs at the end, he stole from a wushu demonstration that he would seen in 1980, and he'd loved the kick so much that he'd spent hours trying to perfect it. Sadly, watching this fight scene again, you can see the bad guy already turn his head before the kick has even landed. And you see things that I never thought about before, like each guy waiting his turn to fight with Mark instead of all going in together. Lots of things now, not being a blue belt, it just, you think, ah, yes, yeah, yeah, that's not quite realistic and that. But all in all, it was still a fun movie to watch and I had fun writing about it. Thanks, Jamie.
0: Okay, I'm convinced Vijay and I grew up watching a lot of similar material. We both have fond childhood memories of the 1970s US rendition of the anime science ninja team Gatchaman, known to us as Battle of the Planets, and the one-season action adventure about a shape-shifting superhero, Manimal. Both were really entertaining shows in their own way that fired up the imagination. Therefore, it should not surprise me that the Back to the Future franchise is dear to his heart. The Back to the Future trilogy of movies summed up just about everything that was great about going to the cinema as a kid. The first film was iconic, and I recall queuing to it to watch at our local Canon Cinema. There were a group of rowdy teenagers who received a royal bollocking from the manager in the back row. However, none of that distracted me from enjoying the movie. We were in an era of watching Happy Days on TV, so it captured that 50s nostalgic romanticism popular in the 1980s and nicely balanced big-budget science fiction special effects, along with the current pop-cultural references and an iconic heroic score from Alan Silvestri. You add into that the vision of writer-director team of Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, who saw the potential to write a comedy for a family audience, not to mention the irreplaceable acting talents of Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, and it's hard to see, in hindsight, how it could ever fail. Mind you, try not to sweat the plot too much. We really don't need to think too hard about the incestuous love triangle, the fact that Marty's father was a peeping Tom see Porky's My Life as a Dog and Gregory's Girl for contextual comparisons of the time, the plan Marty concocts to get his parents together, or or the idea that Marty's dad would employ the man who tried to rape his future wife. Also, as with any time travel story, there are going to be paradoxes that also require you to go with the flow. Incidentally, the writing of this film predates Cameron's writing of The Terminator. It's significant in the respect that neither film look at the future as immutable, which was rare for science fiction at the time. Anyway, to relive the magic of the concept and the nostalgia, I highly recommend you watch the Back to the Future episode of The Movies That Made Us on Netflix for the film's interesting backstory, and if you want to go even further, check out the 2015 Been fan funded back in time. It's great that Vijay chose a sequel for his recommendation rather than the original movie. I believe this makes it the first official sequel entry in the history of the Marshall movie massacre event. Although the original Back to the Future is generally considered as one of the most beloved movies of all time with a massive cultural impact still seen and celebrated today, the sequel somehow carried off a story and thematic trajectory that most fans were comfortable with watching. This was despite them being made four years later. They were able to present something very new whilst remaining totally faithful to the original picture which is an extremely rare achievement for a franchise that wasn't intended to be won in the first place. The two sequels of Back to the Future were shot back to back and released within a year of each other. The second one generally considered by most included the makers as the better of the two. Having always been a geek, I bought both novelisations at the same time with the film's release, so became quite familiar with the scenes. Therefore, looking back at my When Parents Aren't Around book and Vijay's reflections, it's quite possible that the lecture made by Martin McFly's great-great paternal Irish immigrant grandfather, Seamus McFly, had a strong subliminal influence over me. Nice work, Vijay. Only the Strong is also an excellent choice, and I agree it is very underrated. In fact, it has quite the fervent fan base amongst aficionados of late 80s, early 90s martial arts movies. However, a few unfortunate events prevented it from getting the response it deserved, and in propelling Mark Dacascos into the stratosphere of action stardom. Unlike Vijay, I had no knowledge of its initial release. For some reason, its review in my copy of Combat Magazine must have passed me by. Most martial arts movies did not get a cinematic release near where I lived and my travels around the country were often too brief or too concentrated on visiting friends in my circus culture, training or teaching to take much notice whether they were showing on other theatres. To my memory, only Under Siege and Time Cop, respectively the biggest commercial hits of Steven Seagull and Jean-Claude Van Damme, reached our local Canon Cinema. I was aware of capoeira at the time due to first reading about it in my copy of Peter Lewis's The Way of the Martial Arts, just one of several comprehensive coffee table books I sated my martial arts appetite on before finding my first club. And a little later I recorded a late night bohemian style documentary about an Englishwoman finding herself in this Brazilian art and culture or some existential meeting. I don't know clearly I was too immature to appreciate his message or too hungrily expectant to see the daddy scissors or the banana plant moves in action. Anyway, not too long after that, the third Kickboxer movie was set in Brazil, and it featured a capoeira demonstration. This scene was complete with the movie's resident sage Muay Thai crew, Zian, played again by Dennis Chan, providing a description of the art and its mythology. Hell, this was the franchise that totally bought into the broken glass spiked chuk, so it seems reasonable to think that capoeiristas strapped blades to their ankles. Predating Only the Strong by one year, Kickboxer 3 The Art of War is arguably the first US movie to feature, to feature Capoeira. Interestingly the scene has zero relevance to the plot other than to provide accentuated location window dressing. It wouldn't be until around 1996 when my then kickboxing boss called to tell me I had to watch Only the Strong as it was on TV. We were both toying with the idea of getting into movies at the time which coincided with my first meeting with future action movie star scott adkins and my first genuine attempt to create my live martial arts act Like Vijay, I was immediately motivated by the movie and took that feeling straight into my classes. As it happened, several of my students at the time had also watched it for the first time as well and were only too happy to start throwing in more acrobatic variations into our warm-ups. This was also the same time I had begun training in Wushu and learnt how to throw the 360 degree butterfly kick. It took me ages and I rarely landed it properly. According to my kickboxing boss, Scott landed it perfectly the second time he tried and picked up the 720 degree variation just as quickly. That's my contribution to Adkins' law and history. Two years later, it would become my signature corkscrew dropkick whenever I got involved in the action of the professional wrestling promotion I co-ran until 2002. In fact, my final performance paired me with a talented capoeira and Chinese martial arts stylist called Justice Maynard. Incidentally, Dacascos, son of the great martial arts pioneer Al De Cascos, was taught capoeira for the role as his main background was in Chinese martial arts. The same could be said for Paco Cristian Preto, who played the main antagonist and contributed a lot to the choreography. Stylistic training was down to Maestre Armand Santo. You can see that although De Cascos does an excellent job in all of the fight scenes when he's performing with Santo at the beginning and the end of Only the Strong, his acrobatics are quite different in their cadence and execution, more resembling competitive gymnastics and wushu. By the way, I highly recommend the Viking Samurai interviews with Sheldon Lettich as well as other related content on the actors I discussed in the previous podcast. If you enjoyed Only the Strong, it's worth checking out the heartwarming footage of Dacascos and Santo performing together in a 20-year reunion Caproyera demonstration you can find on YouTube. Only the Strong received minimum promotion according to its writer and director, Sheldon Lettich. Lettich, you may recall, wrote the seminal Jean-Claude Van Damme movies Bloodsport, Lionheart and Double Impact, amongst others. In one of several interviews featured on The Viking Samurai, uh, he says that Mark Dacascos' manager ruined the film's chances by trapping him in the box office turkey Double Dragon. Apparently, shooting on this film overran promotional opportunities for Only the Strong, demotivating 20th Century Fox from pushing the picture. According to Letich, test screenings in front of family audiences were very favourable and demonstrated its potential as a mainstream movie. Fox apparently was seeing Dacascos as Brandon Lee's natural successor. You'll recall that these two happen to be my personal favourites from this era of American martial arts movies. Letich says he believes a combination of little fanfare from Fox and the failure of Double Dragon unfairly wrecked both the movie's chances and marked Kaskos's career in Hollywood blockbusters. Looking at the juxtaposition between the unkind critical reviews of the time and just about anyone else that saw the film shows that Letich had a good point. One reviewer calls it the kids from fame with knives and the influential Roger Ebert goes so far as to call it fascist. Ebert clearly had issues getting over the title that implies to some a type of social Darwinism and actually states the film's plot reinforces this interpretation of the title. He's completely wrong. I think Vijay's review, which nicely linked into Mary's non martial arts movie recommendation, is a far better summation of how the film is best appreciated. Speaking of links, Vijay mentioned our next contributor, and I think it's time we turned our attention to Dara Brathneck. This is the man responsible for me going off on a complete ramble regarding how much size and weight counts in a fight on my christmas bar podcast episode dara was an attendee at one of my vagabond warriors workshops in 2019 traveling all the way to the heart of the cotswolds from navan county meath in the republic of ireland incidentally navan is derived from a gaelic word meaning the cave so dara's navan wing chung might be interpreted as cave wing chung which i think is particularly cool Dara has joined us several times during the lockdown for workouts and webinars, and we are eternally grateful for his timekeeping skills. After seven years of Shotokan Karate, in addition to cross-training experiences in Tai Chi, kickboxing, boxing, Aikido and fencing, Dara settled in Wing Chun. He has been head instructor of Navan Wing Chun since 2012. However, he still continues to supplement and expand his knowledge base with Muay Thai and has trained frequently with me in self-protection and mixed
4: martial arts webinars. When Jamie asked me to contribute to the Martial Movie Massacre, I was a little stumped at first. There are so many films out there that trying to pick a single film to recommend to an audience of some of the best and brightest Martial artists in the world is a pretty daunting task. That said, there is one film, or more specifically a scene in one film, which made me change the way I thought about my training. So the film I want to talk about is California. It's a 1993 film about a couple of grad students, Brian, played by David Duchovny, and Michelle Forbes plays Carrie, his girlfriend. They're doing a whistle-stop tour from Pittsburgh to California where Brian is researching a book about serial killers or violent killers. And the plan is to stop at various murder sites along the way so that photographer Carrie can take photos for the book while Brian immerses himself in the scene to kind of kickstart his muse and inspire his writing. Now, they can't afford to pay for this trip themselves, so to help cover the costs, they've looked for someone to car share. And that's how they meet Early, played by Brad Pitt, and his childlike girlfriend Adele, played by Juliette Lewis. I want people to watch this film, so I'm not going to give away any spoilers here, but I do just want to talk a little bit about the scene that made me question my training. So in this particular scene, uh, Brian and Early have headed out to some local dive bar to shoot some pool and drink some beers, while Carrie and Adele stay back in the motel to do girl stuff. You know, they talk about boys and they do their hair, and I'm not joking. That aside, in the bar, some local idiot makes a pass at a waitress. She shuts him down, and then Brian has like a 20-second encounter with the waitress, which the idiot sees, and it annoys the idiot. He then goes up and squares up to Brian, and while they're still in the conversation mode of the encounter, early returns from the bathroom and leans into Brian and just says, "You better hit him because it's coming." Now that line in that context floored me. So at the time, I'm in my early twenties. I've been training in Shotokan Karate for five or six years, and I mean, I've been I've seen Bloodsport, I've seen Karate Kid, over and over and over. More of those sort of films than any of the Bruce Lee films. So and um, what i'm doing in sparring what i'm seeing and training this all matches the violence i'm seeing on the screen so naively i believe i understand violence and fighting i mean if it's what i'm training and if it's what's on tv or what's on the films then what could be different so when early says to brian it's coming all i could think was how does he know i mean what's he seeing here that tells him there's going to be a fight rather than just some idiot mouthing off i mean looking back now it's really obvious how he knew But at the time, knowing nothing about social violence or pre-fight indicators, I was really left wondering how my own training was preparing me for that sort of scenario. And uh, spoiler alert, it wasn't. So watching the film again, like years later, I was struck by how Brian, the self-proclaimed expert on violent killers, repeatedly ignores and excuses the barrage of red flags that Early is throwing up through everything he says and everything he does. On more than one occasion... Brian uses his own logical brain to explain away the concerns that uh, Carrie's finely-tuned lizard brain has raised about Early. For example, uh, people on parole can't cross state lines, but Early has crossed state lines, therefore Early cannot be on parole, right? Because criminals always obey the law, we know this. Look, I'll say no more, Uh, watch the film. It is, in my opinion, an excellent portrayal of how experts, and the rest of us, can sometimes fail to see the obvious and deny reality to avoid causing offence. So that's california my underrated martial arts film is 2001's brotherhood of the wolf yes it could be argued that this is not a martial arts film but the scene where we first encounter manny played by marc de cascos it could have been plucked from any martial arts film you care to mention now this is this is a french film about the investigations into the Beast of Gévaudan just prior to the french revolution king louis XV has sent his naturalist grégoire de Fronsac, played by samuel le bihan to track and stop the beast And I'm sure we've all heard the expression about how it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Well, Defronzac is literally a warrior in King Louis' zoological garden. Now, honestly, the middle third of this film slows down quite a bit, but the first and final thirds are great fun. It is definitely not one to watch with the children, as the French are less hung up on nudity than some other nations. Um, And as I said, it could be argued that this is not a martial arts film, but as far as I'm concerned, it's not hard to argue that... Just as Kurosawa's Seven Samurai are Japanese cowboys, so DeFronzak is a French ninja. So, shanay, girl, mila moha Jamie for asking me to do this. Uh, tough decisions, no doubt, but a great excuse to watch some great films again.
0: Like Vijay, Dara has pinpointed key moments and one scene in particular to illustrate a very poignant and relevant lesson for this show. California, directed by Dominic Senna with a story by Stephen Levy and Tim Metcalf was released just one year after Jeff Thompson's first edition of Watch My Back began discussing a vital point about self-defence tactics and a deficiency in mainstream martial arts, the preemptive strike. Virtually no one was talking about Jean-Joseph Renard's self-defence in the street or John Steyer's cold steel, both of which stand out as examples of teaching this tactic. Gavin DeBecker's The Gift of Fear hadn't been released either, Part of the huge success of that particular book is a reasonable reflection on how little was being discussed about pre instant indicators of interpersonal violence. Indeed, many huge tragedies that would follow over the next two decades demonstrated just how people often misread potentially dangerous situations. California is just one example of several of the excellent dramas and thrillers that came out in the 1990s. I bought my VHS copy wholly based on Juliette Lewis's performance in Natural Born Killers, which had been released a year later. In short, I came very late to this particular party. California is a very underrated thriller, often overshadowed by the later Oliver Stone movie that had been based on a Quentin Tarantino story. California is just one example of several underrated, excellent dramas and thrillers that came out in the 1990s. I bought my VHS copy wholly based on Juliette Lewis's performance in Natural Born Killers, which had been released a year later. In short, I came very late to this particular party. California was a huge box office bomb upon its initial release, failing to recoup around £6.2 on its relatively modest budget, despite winning awards at both the largely pro-Art House Montreal Film Festival and at the genre-based film festival The Saturn Awards. Some argue that this was its problem. Critics and audiences couldn't decide whether it was a profound art house movie or an exploitative horror. What they failed to miss was how well the film contrasted the denial created by the benefits of living in a privileged society against the real dangers never too far from the surface of civilization. By the way, it was me who directly argued with Dara that Brotherhood of the Wolf wasn't really a martial arts movie but rather a period action thriller. In fact, it's a murder mystery, a dark fantasy with horror elements and some have even argued all of these elements pale to its real identity as a profound artistic drama. However, going by Chris's apparent ninja movie entry, my argument feels a bit redundant. Brotherhood of the Wolf isn't underrated either. The film mainly received positive reviews and was nominated for eight awards at different festivals, winning four. Apparently, it is the sixth highest grossing French-language film of all time in the United States, making it one of France's biggest international successes. But if we go back to Jan's defence of nominating The Raid, maybe Dara is arguing that still more people need to see this movie. Perhaps, just as Jan argued, more non-martial arts fans should see The Raid, Dara might be making the point that not enough martial arts fans have seen Brotherhood of the Wolf. And he's probably right. Brotherhood of the Wolf is an excellent film. It's the second Mark Cascos movie put forward in this episode, and as you can guess, that's more than fine with me. Although he's only in a supporting role, he steals the show. As Dara explained, the story is a fantastical reimagining of the Beast of Javorden, a topic I've touched upon in the Way of the Wolf trilogy and Order of St. Ginephor episodes. By the way... If you are interested in the true story, I cannot recommend Monsters of Javord and the Making of a Beast by J.M. Smith enough. It's a brilliant investigation. Anyway, Brotherhood of the Wolf not only has the martial arts performance skills of Tocascos, but it's also reminiscent of The Hound of the Baskerville's Sherlock Holmes mystery, which is always fun. The special effects achieve that balance in blending practical and digital imagery. It is possibly significant that Brotherhood of the Wolf was released the same year as The Fellowship of the Ring. However, instead of the Weta Workshop blending their CGI with detailed miniatures and bigatures, we have the brilliant Jim Henson's Creature Shop providing their traditional animatronics and puppetry. I've also asked Peter Jones to provide us with yet another review of injuries suffered by characters in martial arts and action movies. Peter is the author of Ninja Nurse a thorough and comprehensive book on first aid for martial artists. The work goes above and beyond all matters related to injury and recovery in the practice of martial arts. Peter is an emergency nurse practitioner and advanced nurse practitioner. He is also the founder of Cajun Ruju Jiu Jitsu in Worcester, UK, and possesses high-ranking teaching certification in several different martial arts disciplines.
5: For this contribution to Martial Movie Massacre, Jamie has asked me to cover the way that leg injuries are handled in movies. Let's start with some simple anatomy revision. The leg joins the body via the hip joint which is a ball and socket joint just like a shoulder. And just like a shoulder it can be dislocated in that the ball can come out of the socket. The hip is much more enclosed and so hip dislocations are far less common than shoulder dislocations. The downside to this anatomy is that the range of movement of the hip is significantly less than that of the shoulder. The biggest bone in the leg, and indeed the biggest long bone in the body, is the thigh bone, which is the femur. Joining the body to the thigh bone are some huge and very powerful muscles, chiefly the quadriceps at the front, the hamstrings at the back, and the abductors at the side. The bottom of the thigh bone joins to the top of the shin bone, which is the tibia, at the knee joint. The top of the tibia is basically flat, and so is called the tibial plateau. Hiding under the tibial plateau at the side is the fibula, sometimes called the calf bone. Floating in front of the knee joint is the patella, which is the knee cap. At the front of the knee, the quadriceps muscle becomes a quadriceps tendon, and then the patella tendon, which tethers to the front of the tibia. At the back, the hamstrings become the calf muscle, and lower down the Achilles tendon, which tethers to the heel bone. There are also ligaments at the side of the knee that keep it aligned. At the ankle, the tibia and fibula together form an upside-down U-shape that joins to the talus bone that is the top of the foot. And this joint, collectively, is called a mortise joint. The skeletal structure of the foot is complex, involving the heel bone, a series of tarsal bones, metatarsal bones, and then the phalanges, which are the toe bones. The leg has a great blood supply, lots of big arteries, which, of course, is necessary given how much it needs to do to keep all moving with all the leaves and the dynamics that even the simple act of walking forces upon the leg there are also some significant nerves involved now before i look at movies i'd like to present two real-life examples of leg injuries the first is quite graphic and it's a a youtube video of a man who is shot in the leg Uh, apparently he's committed a crime when he's shot possibly by a police officer and the 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 video is all about the idea of uh, non-lethal shooting so rather than shooting him in the head or the body he gets shot in the leg However, on camera, he bleeds to death really, really quickly. Now, I've sent Jamie a link to this YouTube video, uh, which I'm sure you'll put in the show notes, but you you can find it very easily, actually. The second real-life example is from the recent UFC 261, which took place on the 24th of April. Now, if you watched it, you may be thinking, I mean Chris Weidman's horrific leg break, but I'm actually not. I'm referring to the match that was Anthony Smith and Jimmy Crute, which was stopped by the ringside physician after the first round because of Jimmy Crute's leg injury. He's been kicked in the leg and essentially lost the use of his ankle, causing it to flop around or or drag as he tried to walk. The doctor's decision was absolutely the right one, as the fighter would be unable to properly move and evade further strikes. My strong suspicion is that the leg that caused the injury was to the top of the fibula and it caught the common perineal nerve. Now as emergency nurses we are taught to always examine the joint above and below the joint that we think is affected. So if you come in with an elbow injury really we should be checking your shoulder and wrist. And in this case um, the untrained eye may think that this is an ankle injury because that was where the problem manifested. However, the problem was actually at the knee, just below the knee where the nerve was caught. Now. The upside to this is that this vital should make a full recovery without any need for medical or surgical intervention, that the nerve should completely recover. Now, you may wonder if all of this is rare event or once-in-a-lifetime stuff, but it's really not. I've seen leg arterial bleeds for myself, and they are exactly what the first aid instructor tells you that they are, that you probably think is an exaggeration. Arterial bleeds spurt, and I mean they really spurt. Blood will reach the ceiling easily and spray across the floor. Uh, An arterial bleed in the leg that doesn't receive very rapid treatment will be fatal. Uh, Bleeds from veins can be impressive too. They won't spurge, but they will still ooze an enormous amount of blood in a short space of time and can be fatal. I've seen many leg injuries, many leg injuries of varying severity. I've seen people with hip dislocations walking, but these really are the minority, very, very painful injury. Um, When you fracture your femur, the size and the power of the muscles in the upper leg will actually pull the two fragments across each other in overlapping so the leg will be significantly shorter you cannot miss a femoral fracture, it's it's massive and really, really obvious and they are also considered to be the most painful injuries that a human or amongst the most painful injuries that a human being can experience and now consider that if the bone was to poke out through the skin and yes, I have seen that I've seen it on the roadside, and there are morals to that story along the lines of alcohol, motorbikes, and bends in the road. Now, people with shin bone fractures seldom walk, but I have seen it, albeit rarely. But the fibula is a different story. It's relatively thin and bears little weight. Lots of structures hang off it, but you don't actually put that much body weight through the fibula. Weight goes through the tibia. And I've treated several fibular fractures that have occurred days or even longer before the patient presented to us and these have included spiral fractures with multiple bone fragments. One gentleman I recall was on a sailing holiday and on the first day the boom swung around and impacted his leg and he completed his holiday with all the physicality that it requires and came to us the day after he got home and that was a really bad injury. I've also treated a Muay Thai fighter who had fractured both fibulae by being kicked And finish the fight. Have you ever received a kick to the thigh from someone who knew what they were doing? A proper thigh kick. Even with control they're debilitating, right? A really good one not only deadens your leg but can send a wave of nausea up your body and you don't want to take a second one. And here I'm talking about controlled kicks not actually intended to injure. Again, the muscles in the thigh are huge as are their blood and nerve supply. Have you ever had your thigh covered in bruises after a damn good ring fight? You know, walking is difficult, right? We see UFC fighters, and indeed me in my semi-contact kickboxing, uh, taking a few such kicks with no apparent effect. But later in the fight, you know, in the fifth round or whatever, doing everything you possibly can to not receive further kicks in order to avoid further damage. Now consider a knife stab or a gunshot wound to the thigh. Let's assume it misses major blood vessels and the bone, which is very possible. You're still cutting through a mass of muscle and causing a significant amount of bleeding. That bleeding will occur both externally through the wound that's been created and internally as blood is lost inside the leg and we can see horrific swelling occur. This is significant trauma. This is to a lesser degree what happens with thigh kicks but the bruising is ruptured blood vessels and the blood has got nowhere to go and it will manifest as as bruises. Now, finally, I need to discuss compartment syndrome, both from a movie perspective and from a first aid recognition perspective. To understand this, if you think if I was to cut through your lower leg horizontally with my katana and look down on your leg from above, we can see that that lower leg can be divided into three compartments, a bit like dividing a pie into three slices. Swelling within these compartments is trapped without room to migrate. When the swelling is severe, you can get compartment syndrome in which the swelling becomes dangerous and you actually do get tissue death. It's painful beyond control, even from from morphine doesn't touch it, which is one of your signs. And treatment for compartment syndrome is an emergency fasciotomy where they, they cut open the leg to relieve the pressure. Now, this isn't to suggest that every kick to the lower leg will cause that. That's just patently not true. But it can and does happen. So think of this when your movie hero takes significant impacts to the lower leg. They may survive the scene, but are they danger of leg amputation due to tissue death before the movie is actually over? So all in all, I've treated a lot of leg injuries over the years. And what I've seen is that on the one hand, your legs certainly can take a lot of damage without significant effect. Conversely, there are some leg injuries, especially to the thigh, that are far more traumatic than you realise and there's more going on internally than what you may just see from the outside. So really leg injuries should not be understated.
0: Thanks again Peter for humouring me on this recurring topic. It's always great to get a brief anatomical revision as well as some excellent case studies. Whether it was getting mild dead legs at school to first experiencing full-blown Muay Thai round kicks to my sciatic and femoral nerves, I got an idea of how it felt when legs suffered superficial trauma. It seems to me that unless someone experiences a break or an amputation in most cinema and TV, they've got something akin to Wolverine's healing factor. Next up, we have Les Bubka of the Anxious Black Belt podcast and book, Les teaches regular classes, private lessons and seminars. He has become a pioneer in the field of what he calls karate for mental health. His anxious black belt book is a must read for anyone teaching or training in the martial arts. Les was kind enough to invite me onto his show which is in the show notes for this episode. He's also the author of A Short Guide to Teiso and his collected essays Thoughts on Karate and has created an ingenious karate journal. Hey Jamie, um,
6: here it goes, my um, attempt to uh, talk about the two movies um, Like I said, I'm not great at this, uh, my memory is very good but very short Especially in terms of movies, but I've chosen two uh, The first one going to be the UHF by Al uh, Aljankovic And the second one will be the Fighter in the Wind uh, I'm not sure if many people have seen that, uh, because it's kind of Kyokushin-specific. Um, but here we go. Let's go. So the first movie is The UHF. Uh, it was uh, created in 1989 by will al uh the comedian, uh parodist and a Uh I came across this movie probably... A bit early in my life um so those who read my book know that I've been suffering with anxiety and one of the escapes from uh my fears of people was watching movies. In a strange way I managed to do be a good friend with a odd guy who used to own the Cas VHS Tapes um rental. And to to the stage that he was giving me a tapes for free, to watch and review. Uh, and I was then maybe 13, 14, and uh, he must have been 30, 30 something, and he gave me all the tapes to watch, uh, all the types of movies. Doesn't matter what the age restriction was. I've been watching them. Um, one I came across was uh, UHF I think it goes into uh, both categories of uh, a underrated movie And a movie which I would recommend um, it, it is a movie based on a character who is a loser He drifts away, he's daydreaming all the time putting himself in the roles of his um, heroes. So the movie's structure are in kind of short bursts of action movies, um, TV drama, um, role play by Weird Al, where he's going into a Rambo mode, um, Indiana Jones, whatever was in that era, it's there. But it's all made funny, cheaply, rough. It's a rough humor. Um, not everybody likes it. <clears throat> I'm I'm liking it. It was, in a way, helping me to escape my own thoughts and failures and how I felt about myself. So it's kind of like a, a gate to the different worlds. And it was nice to see that um, other people... Um, do that as well. So, the story goes, <clears throat> Al is giving the, I can't remember his uh, character name, is giving a chance to run the TV station that nobody wants to run. Um, him as a loser, it's predicted that it's all gonna go down and it's gonna be shut down and the bigger station can take it over. But being unconventional, Uh, losing his faith in the project, he started getting everybody to run their own shows, uh, including the uh, janitor and friends, whoever he gets, and it's a great success. I think this movie, um, A, take Mickey out of all the seriousness of American cinema at that time, Promoting the one American superhero Fighting the bad guys and winning It takes Mickey of the American culture And American society In an apologetic way I loved it uh, There's one scene which classified as well as a martial arts scene Which I'm using a lot in my content It's where Al and his friend going through the street And there's a dojo on the first floor And then the student flies out lands on the pavement and Al is talking to the instructor, saying how he's going and the instructor shouting in a kind of Japanese accent, oh beginners are so stupid, I don't know why but it it it, it really is my favorite scene in the whole movie you really have to watch it to understand what they say uh, what i mean it's it's really not everybody's cup of tea if you love al jankovic uh, it's gonna be a treat for you if you don't you're gonna hate that movie so many people from my circles hate that movie i love it i think it's brilliant and gives a hope to all the people who suffer who are dreamers can't focus that if you put the efforts in it you will succeed the life gonna find a way to help you support you and you need to put trust In your friends and that sometimes they can bring the best out of you even if you don't know it I hope you're gonna enjoy that movie give it a go and the second movie that I think is underrated is a fighter in the wind the story of Mas Oyama founder of Kyokushin as with most of the movies about uh, legends of karate or sports and, and stuff like that. It's based on the legends. Legends, overinflated legends of Mas Oyama. And his story starting in Korea, moving to Japan, trying to be a fighter pilot, getting into army, uh, then moving on to training and becoming a legend of Kyokushin, starting the strongest karate it's a well-made movie, the the scenery is great. All in Japan and Korea, so the beautiful pictures. The story is like everything with Oyama, overinflated and a legendary, I would say. But that's the part of the Oyama legacy and those who follow Kyokushin. Are aware of it, but glorifying him because he was great leader and great manager in a way and showman. He knew how to get people attention and build Kyokushin from zero to one of the top organization in the world. Um, Another bonus of that movie, if you like the heavier sounds, the soundtrack is full of heavier sounds. What I like the best in all Marshall's movie is the training part. And the training part is the most of the movie when Oyama is in the forest, training on his own, getting ready for the fights. As well, personally for me, I always liked the ripped geese without sleeves and um, scene that you've been fighting. And most of his fights are in that kind of suit. For Shotokan people it might be not appropriate. Long trousers, um, buggy geese, but nice fighting choreography. Of course you, you cannot take it literally, it doesn't look like a fight. But you've got a genuine karate fighters in there doing the best they can to show off karate. And the fights are karate stylistic so it's more or less karate looking like i enjoyed that movie i think it is niche movie for uh, kyokushin followers but if you like arts movies good music i think you should give it a go thank you Les. i'm gonna be cheeky here i hope jamie won't mind
0: okay there's more from Les in this series of podcasts so i won't talk too much about his choices other than i'm a fellow weird al yankovic fan. Loved him since Eat It and Dare to be Stupid and then rediscovered him as a young adult. Although UHF was not a commercial success and failed to launch Weird Al's movie career, it's one of those movies that just happens to be on at night and you can't help but settle into the comfortable zaniness. It isn't one of my favourite comedies and I definitely preferred Weird Al the parody or novelty singer than the actor but it's certainly better than a good number of other attempts by vocalists to transition to the big screen. A few of them I hasten to add Yankovic parodied. Weird Al has always been that healthy reminder to not take anything too seriously. The lesson Les has taken from it certainly resonates. Fighter in the Wind has been on my list for too long. I need to see it. Thanks for reminding me, Les. Oyama was on the cutting room floor of the previous lesson when I discussed his connection with Sean Connery during the making of You Only Live Twice, but I will save that for another episode. We now move on to practical karate teacher Tracy Radley. Tracy not only has put forward some superb questions for this show in the past, but also kindly stepped in for Mary Stevens at the last moment to help co host one of my webinars. Tracy is an inspirational teacher who has grown her club through a particularly challenging time. She is now the founder of Curitan Practical Karate in Colchester, Essex. Hi,
7: Jamie. Thanks for asking me to take part in your podcast. Uh, you asked me to come up with a non-martial arts movie that I felt that martial artists should watch. Now, I thought, oh my goodness, how am I going to choose a film? There are just so many. But then I also thought, you know what? As a mum, for the last 11 years, 99% of the films that I have actually watched have been children's films. But you know what? That's not such a bad idea, because as many of you know, There is a high percentage of children that do martial arts, so why not pick a kid's film? So today I'm going to talk about the animated film Ballerina. So the ballerina, I went to see it at the cinema with my children. My little girl was desperately excited to see it. Me and my son were not so excited. We didn't think it was going to be our cup of tea. But however, we were completely taken aback by this film. It tells the story of a young girl called Felice, who is desperate to be a ballerina, And she runs away with her friend who wants to be an inventor. They run away to Paris and she manages to get into a top ballet school. She finds a retired ballet dancer to train her. And then it goes on and it covers lots of aspects um, to do with ballet that are also really relatable to martial arts. It looks at the dedication to her training, how much time she has to put in. It looks at the competition and how much competition there is against other girls that are also trying to, to compete. And it also talks about other distractions that we all find in life when we're, we're trying to train and, and things happen, life happens. For example, the night before a massive audition that she has been training for, for months and months, she suddenly decides that she's going to go out with a boy instead of training. And then it talks about how that affects, affected her audition. And, but the biggest question though, all the way through the film, is that she kept being asked, why does she dance? And it wasn't till the end that she actually realised why. And then I thought about it and I thought, you know what? Anybody who puts that amount of dedication and time into training, as you do in ballet and you also have to do in martial arts, you have to have a really good reason for wanting to do it. You have to have the right reason. Because if you don't have the right reason, then you're not going to be able to put that level of training in. So that really, really asked a lot of questions and made my children, and even me think, why do I do martial arts? The same as she was questioning, why does she do ballet? My kids came out of that film absolutely geared up wanting to train. Mummy, will you train us? Mummy, will you train us? And not in ballet, in martial arts. And even now, every time they watch that film, It really, really makes them want to train. So, I mean, if that does that to my children, perhaps it might make other kids feel like that too. So I'm gonna recommend the animated film, Ballerina. You asked me to come up with an underrated martial arts film that I felt needed more love. And this film instantly sprang to mind. The film I'm gonna talk about is Million Dollar Baby. Now it's actually an Academy Award-winning film but I found very few people who actually liked it. Uh, A lot of guys I've spoken to who watched it said they found it boring, they couldn't identify with the characters, and my non-martial arts female friends said that they found it just to be too depressing. But the film is actually about a lady called Maggie who desperately wants to be a boxer. She's finds herself though to be a minority in the gym. One, because she's female, and secondly, because at 31 years old, many perceive her to be just too old to train. She manages to convince an ill-tempered coach who's played by Clint Eastwood to train her. And he is really impressed with her determination and talent and helps her to become the best. I think that the film portrays what it's like to be a minority within the martial arts. I could really identify with some of the scenes and how much harder certain individuals have to work just to be accepted. And because of that, I really think it's a film that all martial artists should watch.
0: I can't say Ballerina has popped up on my to-watch list, but I can totally relate to what Tracy's saying about the message. When I interviewed Mary Stevens on the Why Role Models Should Be Critical Thinkers episode, she put forward Simon Sinek's Find Your Way, Purpose is a crucial part of my own training philosophy that was mainly inspired by teaching children self-protection and a need to prioritise training in my life. It's a reoccurring question that we need to ask ourselves. I'm really glad that Tracy and her children found this message in an unlikely place. It's also great to have an animated film on the show. When Tracy told me she was going to put forward Million Dollar Baby, I was pleasantly surprised. As she says, this was an Academy Award winning film. It was also a box office smash hit. However, prior to achieving these successes, it took writer Paul Haggis years to sell his script and it was stuck in production hell for a long time. Incidentally, Haggis was involved with writing and producing some of the most memorable situational comedies and episodic dramas from the 80s and 90s. Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, Different Strokes, The Love Boat, LA Law and Family Law are just a few examples – But linking this podcast to my last episode, it's worth mentioning that he was the force behind Walker Texas Ranger, the show that gave Chuck Norris a new lease of life as his career fell with the dying Canon Films. However, Haggis' huge resume failed to impress Hollywood with Million Dollar Baby. Even with a very enthusiastic and invested Clint Eastwood signed to direct and star, a negotiation had to be made between Lakeshore Entertainment and Warner Brothers to get the movie its required budget. I wonder if the reactions Tracy and other fans of the film have experienced from their peers is reflective of the low confidence studio executives had back in the 1990s. Million Dollar Baby, released in 2004, is worth watching because it's a movie that does everything on its own terms without once becoming pretentious. I see it as forming a very tenuous trilogy of movies... Clint Eastwood acted and starred in in the 1990s and 2000s sandwiched between Unforgiven and Gran Torino all three of these films lightly wear the coats of popular action genre films the western the sports drama and the vigilante action drama all of which Eastwood had more than made his mark on and yet contain far tougher introspective real questions and lessons about humanity. Indeed, I would recommend all three of those particular films as non-martial arts films for martial artists, even though Million Dollar Baby is definitely a martial arts movie. There are those who have put down the fight scenes of, of Million Dollar Baby for being unrealistic within the context of boxing, but I think we can give that a liberal pass when we take into consideration how many of us forgive the Karate Kid franchise's action, thanks to its characters, themes and design, and the same can certainly be said for the Rocky series. I won't spoil anything for you if you haven't watched Million Dollar Baby other than to say that it isn't a popcorn movie and it's anything but predictable. Bonus geek comment, the film's title comes from an insult Sonny Liston threw at a young upstart boxer who dared to challenge him for the world title, a certain Muhammad Ali. thanks to my guests please check them out in the show notes you can catch chris wilder at chris wilder.com mary stevens at athena karate.com vijay Pathak at forest karate.com dara brathneck is on the wing chung dot i e chung spelt t-s-u-n website under navan Uh, peter jones is at cajunroo.com les bubka is at LesBubka.co.uk, and tracy radley's kuritan karate can be found across social media including facebook linkedin and instagram please don't forget to check out the published works of chris wilder mary stevens peter jones and les bubka if you'd like to book me, I have a range of different services. The bespoke nature of my work has allowed several of my clients to get creative with what I can provide for them as individuals and for their students. I teach adult self-protection. There is my when parents want to round and children's self-protection programs based on my book of the same name. There is my Vagabond Warriors cross-training concepts. I also teach mixed martial arts as a single discipline and also divide it up into composite courses focusing on boxing, kickboxing, stroke Muay Thai, stand-up grappling and submission grappling stroke ground fighting. I teach weapon awareness and weapon attribute training skills. These courses can are and are being delivered as one-to-one lessons, small group lessons, workshops, seminars, and webinars. Some of my clients have encouraged me to run courses on teaching fight history online via Zoom, whereas others are now streaming me directly into their classrooms, where we can take full advantage of the fight footage available to develop various lesson plans and workouts. My books, Mordred's Victory, When Parents Aren't Around, and Wrong Fu are all available as eBooks. Now, for the first time ever, Fu and Mordred's Victory are available as paperbacks. These are new editions, including new edits, updated and additional material. Mordred's Victory even has a new preface. You can order these directly from Amazon, or order them from me for a signed copy. In the meantime don't forget to check out the clubchimera.com website where I post up a regular blog and links to my social media can be found amongst other material. There is increasingly more content going up on my YouTube including train along videos, hashtag CCMA challenge, vlogs, footage from my courses, video versions of these podcasts and other martial artists recommended content in my playlists. Join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. If you subscribe to this show, then please consider writing a review. Indeed, I'm also in need of and very grateful for reviews on my Google page and Facebook business page. Finally, keep your eyes peeled and all these places for news on open events that I regularly hold throughout the year. This year's Marshall Movie Massacre appears to be the biggest yet. I'm going to be cheeky here. I hope Jamie won't mind and I have to confess it's going to be a challenge to get it all in before our Halloween episode in October. Anyway, I should be back sooner than usual in September for Marshall Movie Massacre 10, or X if you like. Thanks for listening.